0: The sermon series that we're in currently is Hidden Figures. Each week we get to look at a woman in scripture who is not usually highlighted, but who had significant leadership and influence on the Jewish people. At this point in this series, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know how I feel about women in leadership I believe that women and men are both fully called by God to whatever God wants from them, no limitations. Linda Belleville, author of Women Leaders in the Bible, writes, It is sometimes remarked that God permitted women to lead at times when Israel lacked adequate male leadership. But the examples of Miriam, Deborah, and Hulda, who ministered in the context of other renowned male figures, Moses, Barak, Josiah, Jeremiah, demonstrates the opposite. A couple weeks ago, we met Miriam, leading alongside Moses and Aaron during the Exodus and the wilderness years. Last week, we met Deborah, leading with Barak during the years of the judges in Canaan. And today, we get to meet Huldah. Huldah's story is found in both 2 Kings chapter 22 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Um, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles are both history books written by different authors, but they tell much of the same stories. The books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles throughout those three books um, highlight the years of the kings in Israel. So today we're going to look at the 2 Kings um, passage of hold uh, us the second kings chapter 22 if you have a bible or a smartphone and you want to pull that out we'll we'll read that in a little bit so second kings chapter 22 but this these three books samuel kings and chronicles um they're they highlight the time or they tell the story of the time from the end of the judges which we talked about them last week with deborah so the end of the judges Through the time of Israel's kings, right up until all of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, were conquered, and many were led into exile into the surrounding kingdoms. So the full history of Israel's kingdom, um, both the north and the south. Like the judges, the kings were all over the place in their faithfulness to God, I think it goes without saying that having power and influence can go to your head, and often we as humans forget how we got that power and influence in the first place. So we read the similar stories in um, Kings as we did in Judges. Unlike judges, however, kings were, as you can probably assume, they were dynastic. So the father is king, then the son is king, and then grandson, and so on, um, until there's a dynastic change, which does happen um, kind of in Israel's history. In all of the Jewish kings, though, David is known as the greatest. We know King David. He wrote most of the Psalms in our Bible. He was the shepherd boy, the least among his family, who grew to this great king. He was chosen by God, and it will be from the line of David that the Messiah is born, Jesus. So we're going to read this story from Huldah, and I mentioned David because um, of this first verse uh, in in 2 Kings chapter 22, so uh, we're going to read about Hulda. 2 Kings 22. I'm going to start at verse one, and we'll just read through the story. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adaiah. She was from Bozha. Names so crazy. But Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. See, it's significant that Josiah followed in the ways of David. The kings that were before him, that is not the case. Even his father and grandfather, um, what it says about them is that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so Josiah, though, we know he was a similar king as David, one who is faithful to God, who led the people well. And so knowing that in this context is, is important for our story. So continuing on, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to to supervise the work on the temple, and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord. The carpenters, the builders, and the masons also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple, but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. So Josiah, like a few other kings before him, not his father or grandfather, but Josiah wanted to rebuild the temple. For, for years, the temple had been used for worship of other gods. The, the Jewish people had started to worship the gods of the people around them, and they were losing their focus on their relationship with the one true God of Israel, and so they had used the temple. The temple wasn't being cared for by the people, and so, but Josiah, as a heart that was after um, faithfulness to God, knew that it was important for him to instruct the people to rebuild the temple, so he went to the high priest and had them um, get people to rebuild this temple, So this is where we find Hilkiah the high priest. So um, let's let's keep reading. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the high priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Achaim son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. He said, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So Hokiah the priest, Decaim, Akbar, Shappan, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter, or the second quarter. This is what she said to them. Oh, I do just want to point out, though, that what they found, the book of the law that they found was a portion of Deuteronomy that talks about the judgment that God is going to put on the people if they turn from the ways, if they turn from the festivals, if they turn from worship in the temple. And so there will be this judgment on these people. And so it's significant then that Josiah tore his robes because he realized that they had not done what god had instructed them to do and so that tearing of his ropes was an act of um, of conviction of knowing that they had not done what was right so this is what huldah says to them she says this is what the lord the god of israel says tell the man who sent you to me this is what the lord says i'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. So God says that he's going to bring destruction on the people because they have chosen to worship idols. But because Josiah's heart was turned and humbled towards God, uh, Josiah will not see that destruction. So that's, that's the prophecy that Huldah gave to the king. The structure of Jewish leadership had three branches. They had kings, priests, and prophets. And we see each of these in this passage. The kings ordered the political life of the people and dealt with international affairs. In this passage, this is Josiah, he comes from a long line of kings, many of whom were evil. His grandfather Manasseh was evil, but eventually humbled himself. Uh, He was humbled by God, and maybe that's where Josiah's reverence for God came from. He saw his grandfather's example, not his father's. His father only was king for for a few months and, and did evil. So that's King Josiah. The priests ordered the religious life. They worked in the temple. They kept the festivals going, making sure everyone obeyed the law as given to Moses. Being a priest, like being a king, was a family job. Only those whose family was from the tribe of Levi could be a priest. So if your dad was a priest, you were and your sons will be. The key words for the ministry of the priests are sacred or secular, pure or impure. During the time of Josiah and the kings before him, there were still priests, like we saw in this passage, uh, the high priest Hilkiah, but the traditions were lost. The people were worshiping other gods, and the temple for many years had been used to worship these other gods, not just the one true God. So the kings, the priests, and the prophets. The prophets dealt more in the social realm of the people. Kings were political, priests were religious, prophets were social. Prophets would speak out against injustice and oppression, not just injustice coming from the nations surrounding Israel, although they did mention that at times too, but injustice coming from the political and religious institutions of the Jewish community. The key words for the ministry of the prophet are righteousness and justice, kindness and compassion, and we see this throughout scripture in the major and minor prophets. Prophets would bridge the religious law to the everyday life, so they would say, are we, doing, are we living out the law of God in our everyday life in concern for our neighbors? During the reign of Josiah, there were a couple of different prophets in the region. Jeremiah, Zephaniah, um, they believe Habakkuk at one point was during the reign of Josiah as well. And as we know from this story, there was also Huldah. Typically, a king would have a certain prophet that they went to when they needed advice, when they needed to know what God would think, when they needed to know what the future might hold based on their past, present, and future actions. The fact that these five men sent by the king knew which prophet to go to, they could have gone to Jeremiah or Zephaniah, but they knew to go straight to Huldah. And by the fact that they knew that, it probably meant that Huldah was Josiah's preferred prophet. The role of the prophet was to speak truth to power to the political and religious institutions, calling them out for ways in which they are being unfaithful to God and ways they are hurting the people. The word prophet actually means um, the mouthpiece of God. So I just want you to think about that. The word prophet means the mouthpiece of God. God's voice, as we see here in this passage, isn't just masculine. If a woman can be a prophet, the mouthpiece of God, that means that God's voice is feminine too. But the significance of Huldah's story is not her gender. The significance of this story is how normal and unfazing it is for the king and these men to one, go to Huldah to hear the word of the Lord, and two, to listen to what she says and act accordingly. It was as normal as wearing your seatbelt when you drive or putting the correct shoes on the, on the correct feet, as normal as drinking water. There was no mention of, of her gender, of why they were choosing her. Once the king heard Huldah's prophecy, he acted immediately. And as one author puts it, he did not delay, he didn't seek a second opinion, and he didn't dismiss Hulda's words because she was a woman. He submitted to the authoritative word of God communicated by a woman. It wasn't a big deal that she was a woman and it wasn't a big deal that the king listened to her. The text doesn't mention it. The text doesn't go into detail about why a woman was chosen over a man, how a woman could do the job, why the men would listen to the woman. These are all ideas and opinions and cultural ideals that we put on to the text we don't have to justify why a woman prophet was sought. And if we let the text speak for itself, we hear that it's okay, that this is normal, and this is good. As I suggested last week, it seems from Scripture that women in Miriam and Deborah and Holda's times were held in some sort of equal esteem as the men around them, and that through the centuries, the role that they played in Scripture and in leadership in the Jewish people that it's been minimized and silenced over generations. And this is why we are doing this series. Because women like Hulda have a right to their story being told and lifted up in history, just like Jeremiah's. And because today, women today cannot and should not be told what they can and cannot do in this world. How they can or cannot affect change for good in this world. What we see from Huldah's story is that Huldah did not hold back when she knew what to say. So I pray that we all, as we look at Huldah, we all find the humility to hear God, the courage to speak up when called, and the audacity to listen to the truth in whatever form it presents itself to us. I believe that each of us knows a woman who is just simply trying to do the things she's good at, she's passionate about, educated for, and called by God to do in this world. So may we lift up her story. May we listen to the contribution that she has for this world. Today, I want to share with you some of the bravest, fiercest, most faith filled women that I know, and you also, many of you know these women. These four women are leaders in their workplaces, each in different industries. And they're going to share about their experience and and give us insight and hope for creating a more equitable world, both for men and women, as we all come to the table and listen to diverse and innovative and creative ways to go about creating a better world that we live in. So let's hear from these women. I'm
1: Heidi Weaver-Smith. Uh, I am the executive director and founder of Love Boldly, which is a faith-based nonprofit working at the intersection of the church and the LGBTQ
2: community. Hi, I'm Sarah Mazzada. I'm an engineer for a power company, and we work on um, building transmission lines across the country.
3: Hi, I'm Christy Fisher. I am a um, transmission finance manager, also for a power company. And we work on um, providing earnings and um, budgeting analysis for the transmission sector.
4: Hi, I'm Mary Lauren Neal. I am a neonatologist, which basically means I um, am the kind of doctor that takes care of newborn babies who need ICU level care. um, And I'm also a researcher.
1: So I think uh, for me, I've always been somebody who's sort of drawn to the people who are excluded, you know, from my early childhood, always liking the movies that were about like the underdog or the person who was excluded and them finding senses of belonging and things like that.
2: So um, if you ask a lot of engineers, they often say, oh, I just like math and science. So they told me I should be an engineer. And, And that was true for me, but I think there was a moment I remember watching Apollo 13 as a kid, and there's this scene where they, you know, they're obviously having a problem in space and they throw all these parts on the table and they said, we need to figure out a way um, to make it work, to bring them back home safely. And so just seeing that collaboration around a table, how to put parts together to make something work was um, extremely exciting to me. Definitely see my job as a calling and I don't think
4: uh, I could do what I do unless I did view it that way. And quite honestly, unless my family also viewed it that way, we have loved my job, and I think that I get to make the world better. And I I see it as an opportunity to um, bring God's kingdom to people in a really really vulnerable time.
3: And I wasn't ever sure I wanted to be, you know, like a career person. Um, you know, I didn't really have a great Asked for that that I I knew of, um, you know. Um, Mommy. And <laughs> it's so perfect. That's right. <laughs> it's so perfect.
4: I was really worried about it. Um, like even in like high school, I remember being like, because I didn't I didn't know a ton of um, women that worked outside the home. And so as I kind of got further along in high school and I was like, I think I probably want to like, you know, do that. I I wasn't, I was really worried about like what that would look like and was it possible and, you know, having a partner that is also willing to, you know, co-parent and, and, um, you know, pick up the slack and, be flexible and work with you is really um, important. At least that's the only way we've been able to make this whole thing work.
1: Um, I think when I became a mom, I questioned a lot about whether I was supposed to now sacrifice like one calling for another. Like now that I'm a mom, is that supposed to be like my primary and I'm supposed to like just fill in the gaps other places with things I'm passionate about or, you know, like it was almost like a, I really feel like I went through sort of an identity crisis. Um, I think for many women it's very hard to figure out what that balance should be and to feel like you're striking it well and um, and there's so many expectations and I have a hard time feeling, figuring out if I have my own expectations for myself that are unrealistic or if that's sort of society's expectations for me that I sort of absorbed and put onto myself. Um, another thing we decided to do almost about
3: nine months ago was to have a third kid. And that was, um, you know, that was kind of one of those decisions too. Like, I think it, I do think for men, it's a little bit different in their careers to have a third child um, than it is for women. For me, I knew from the get go, it would set me back. And I knew, you know, I wouldn't be in a position to go up as fast, Um, but we decided anyway to do that. So it's kind of like always thinking through the future You know what we want with family versus what you know I want to strive after for my career.
2: I think my approach has been trying to really have an open hand with things just let go of what I think something should be or what I should be chasing after and then try to really look within and reflect on where I'm at with with what my true priorities are. I always want to make sure that um, my faith feels like I'm centered with God and that I'm prioritizing how I love my family and feeling, I can tell when I start to get super stressed out and frustrated all the time and lashing out, like that's really what's gonna be the hardest on my family. And so if I can um, have an open hand with everything else and say, how do I get back to that space where I feel like I'm my best self, whatever that is. And sometimes that's a small decision, sometimes that's big.
3: my My general takeaway from this, from my last conversation with my boss about how I can prove is that improve is that I just need to have some more qualities that are a lot more similar to men, <laughs> or at least very
2: specific men that I work with. Think about women leading in particular. There's even a narrower band that's acceptable. So if you go too far, you're considered bossy. And if it's not enough, then you become this wallflower, and you'll you know probably be asked to take notes a lot of times and not participate as much. And so, it's really um, you have to navigate it even more um, strategically. So I remember when I got this new position, and I had to go to the first meeting where everyone was getting together, and I walk into the room, and I'm the only woman at the woman at the meeting, and. Um, nobody introduces me. You know, I kind of awkwardly come in, and and of course, it's my worst nightmare. They're all talking about golf, which I have absolutely nothing to contribute to. So um, those are the things that um, nobody's intentionally doing. Those things they don't even think about them, and they talked about golf for a long time. And so I just sit there, and and I don't know. We so but if we all start kind of observing and looking for those patterns of all people to feel included at the table, um, make sure that people are, are um, have the space to talk, that you hear from multiple perspectives, that you encourage to draw people out in those times. I think that will really make a difference. I have to be extremely
4: assertive and sort of insist on my title because what happens is I'll have families later that say, I haven't seen a doctor all day. And I talk to them for an hour, um, but they assume that I'm the nurse. Um, and it's really interesting because my husband, who's also, he's a PhD doctor, but but it's very different because in his classes, he tells his students, he's like, call me Michael, like none of this Dr. Neal stuff. I think that's something that he recognizes is a privilege of being the person, like he looks like a professor, right? And so he doesn't need, and actually he's really trying to break down those, those barriers, um, whereas I have to create those
1: barriers just because he's male and I'm female. Like, the feedback that I often get then is like, you should pull back more, like, you should listen more, you should, you know, and so it is that like, what Sarah said, like, it's really hard to figure out, like, who do people want me to be? Like,
2: (laughs) can I just like bring my full self to this conversation? There's other studies that show, I think it's that women's or girls' confidence peak when they're eight years old. And so, um, what are like? How do we rewrite those messages that they hear at that point, at that really vulnerable age, um, really formative time, of about our confidence as women and how we're viewed and seen?
1: I would just say there's no such thing as the right kind of woman. <laughs> like, I mean, we all are leading in workplace in various ways. Um, Women who stay home with their kids are leading in the home in a a unique way. And I think, you know, to each person, whatever God has called you to for that season. Um, I also know lots of women leaders who have decided for a season to take a break and be with their family because they feel called to that. And I think
2: going back to kind of how we started this conversation, like keep following curiosity and passion. I think that's when you start really living into the gifts that God's given us and that you want to obviously keep your communication strong with God because the world has a ton of various messages. Some are good and some are bad and lead us astray. And so just keep following those, what you, what really stirs in your heart of of, of what you want to do in the world. and, and you know, latch onto those people that are supportive and that can encourage you. And then on the other side, be ready to have brave conversations because you're gonna have to have a lot of those with people in your family. But then as you start to kind of see these things play out, I think if we can all, um, from a place of love, have those brave conversations, I think that when we look back at diversity and inclusion, like that's how we include others into the process when we're willing to kind of hear different perspectives and, and understand why and not jump to defensiveness and, and all those things that we can feel because we're talking about vulnerable things. And then I think we all grow stronger together that way.
0: That conversation was uh, so good and so life-giving for me, and I hope that you found some encouragement in that. We are hoping to put the full hour-long um, conversation on our podcast, so stay tuned uh, for that. And if you're interested in hearing the full uh, conversation, you can just um, let us know, either put it in the chat or um, we'll, we'll get that to you. Um, so good. Uh, Hear now this benediction for your week. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.